coming up a month to go to the elections you've barely thought about in Scotland, in Wales and a big battle in London. London will look much the same in 2020, irrespective of which one of them wins. Plus, what's Ian Duncan Smith's resignation's done to the Tory leadership race? And where would we stand in Jeremy Corbyn's loyalty league table? Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading the podcast and apologies about the voice. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that there's only around a month to go to the votes that have everyone talking. Not that vote. We'll we'll get to that vote, but a little bit later on. May the 5th is the date you couldn't remember when we'll elect a Scottish Parliament, a Welsh Assembly, thousands of councillors in England, and in London, a Mayor and an Assembly. These are, of course, the first significant electoral test for Jeremy Corbyn, but polls suggest it will be another grim night for Labour in Scotland, possibly in Wales as well, and certainly in England. No wonder then that for so many Labour activists, London is the one shining hope of May's elections. If Sadiq Khan can take City Hall for Labour, it could be the only bit of good news for the party's leader. And as Boris Johnson prepares to step down and spend more time with his career aspirations, Sadiq Khan's not the only candidate hoping to fill his shoes. You could be forgiven for not knowing this, but the Mayor of London is the most powerful directly elected position in the UK. In the 16 years since we first elected a mayor, we've had two, shall we say, interesting personalities in Ken Livingston and Boris Johnson. This time, though, they're not quite so big. Martin Hostchik spends more time than is advisable following London politics. I asked him to pretend for a moment that we'd forgotten these huge and powerful personalities who are vying for the job. These elections are a real curiosity for British politics, isn't it? I mean, normally, as voters, we're used to casting judgment on someone who's seeking re-election. But here in London, for the first time since 2000, when the, when the initial elections for City Hall were held, we've got a completely clean slate. There's no Ken, no Boris. Instead, we've got Zach Goldsmith for the Conservatives, Richmond Park MP, first elected in 2010. And we've got for Labour, Sadiq Khan, former Transport Minister, Shadow Justice Spokesperson, one of the architects of what was last year a truly remarkable performance in in London, you know, the general election in May, they had a truly terrible result nationally. But here in London, Labour won seats, increased their votes. You know, some a lot of that is down to to, to Sadiq's campaign. He was he was the the Shadow London spokesperson at the time and, and and played a big part in shaping that campaign. For the Liberal Democrats, they've got Caroline Pigeon. She's a very experienced politician, the most experienced of the mayoral pack. Actually, the Greens have got Sean Berry. She's a very good media performer, very good hustings performer. She ran for the party in two thousand and eight, and for. For UKIP, there's Peter Whittle. He's he's probably the least known of, of all of them. He likes to shock audiences by 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 um, describing himself as the openly gay UKIP candidate. The presumption in much of the coverage is that Sadiq Khan is the most likely to win. All the opinion polls suggest that Sadiq Khan is on course to, to do that for them. You know, there's been about four polls so far this year. Sadiq's enjoyed a comfortable lead in each of them. And so it looks like he's about to reclaim City Hall. But worth noting, last summer when people were polled whether they would vote whether they would vote for Sidney Khan over Zach Goldsmith, people said no. You know, actually all the opinion polls suggested that while Tessa Jell, who could beat Zach Goldsmith in a straight race, that Sadiq would lose. Now currently the polls suggest that that position's been reversed. But with opinion polls being wrong last May, I guess there'd be some people in Labour who will be hoping that the current polls are the ones that have got it right. So far Zach's message doesn't really seem to be 
winning it for him. You know, he's behind in all the polls, as we were just saying. On the other hand, we're five weeks away from the election. He can't really radically overhaul his campaign and change the, change his message. So he's going to have to push ahead and hope that as people get more engaged and as more people become interested and aware of the election, that that starts to resonate with, with people who, who, who the polls say, you know, large number of people have yet to make up their mind. He's got to hope that that central message, that, that, that invitation to disbelieve his opponent really starts to, to take hold. As far as the other candidates are confirmed, the, the system that's used to elect the mayor really does mean that they just don't stand a chance, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Caroline Pigeon, Peter Whittle, Sean Barry, none of them are going to be the next mayor of London, you know, and, and they know that. We, I mean, we know that, and more importantly, they know that. They know that they can't win. Their parties are hovering somewhere between sort of 5 and 6% in the most generous opinion polls. To win the mayoralty, you need 50.1% of everybody who turns out to vote on May the 5th. So they know we're close. You know, the next mayor is going to be Zach or Sadiq. The reason they're running is not really to be elected as mayor. Each of them is also standing for election to the London Assembly. You know, the London Assembly is 25 members elected to scrutinise the mayor. They know what they're doing. They know what they're there for. None of them expect, they're really expecting to be the mayor. I mean, of course, in an interview, if we asked them, you know, they would tell us that they really think, you know, they can. But, I mean, you know, let's be honest, they don't think they can. They don't expect to be. None of them are really preparing for, for power. What difference would it actually make to the lives of Londoners who ends up as the mayor? I think the office of mayor is really very important. It, it, you know, it, it is important that London has somebody who can speak with a strong voice. It's got a big mandate who can go to ministers and say, look, you know, I speak on behalf of the majority of Londoners. I was elected by more than 50% of people who turned out to vote. As to whether it truly matters whether the next mayor is Zach or Sadiq, I mean, with the exception of transport, where there's a big, clear divide, they all agree on the need to clean up London's air quality, the desire to get more people cycling and to make sure that people who cycle are safe, to build more homes. There isn't a huge divide, I think, between all on most of the issues. And London will look much the same in 2020, irrespective of which one of them wins. Martin Hostrick there, whose Mayor Watch website is a sort of one-stop shop for everything related to politics in London. Well, Robert Meakin, as ever, joins me. Uh, Robert, you would imagine, uh, given that Sadiq Khan's victory is the only possibly good thing that could happen to Jeremy Corbyn um, after the May 5th elections, that he'd be very keen to get out and about with that mayoral candidate. And they did campaign together in North London last weekend. The problem was it was the first time in five months that they'd actually been seen in public together. And it came days after the publication of that secret Labour loyalty list where Sadiq Khan was listed as hostile. It is fair to say they didn't appear too friendly, side by side, and uh, you really do need to see the handshake between Mr Corbyn and Mr Khan to fully appreciate just how lacklustre it was. Contact had not been broken when Sadiq Khan had turned his back and marched up the street. They were meant to be door-knocking in, in Islington together, and what they actually did was they walked in opposite directions and knocked on doors at opposite ends of the street. So I would say... Yeah, pretty hostile. Yeah, I mean, Sadiq Khan has been at pains over the last few months to, to, to stress he is he is not the, the Corbyn candidate and that is certainly not going to change because that is not at all helpful to him. It is obviously far more helpful to Jeremy Corbyn if Sadiq Khan wins London as he's as expected to because it obviously props up the, the current state of the Labour Party. But no, uh, there's, there's, there's no love lost there at all. It really doesn't help him that these elections, the local elections in England, are being fought against the 2012 results. They were Ed Miliband's best election results in the entire time he was Labour leader. Labour got 38% of the vote. So that's his break-even position. For Jeremy Corbyn to do as well 
as he did in these seats four years ago, Labour have to get 38%. Yes, and right now it's it's extremely you know hard to see Corbyn coming near that figure. You say that was sort of Miliband enjoying his sort of probably the height of his success electorally, and it's very hard to imagine that Corbyn is going to peak in such a fashion this May. As, as we said, I think that's why London is particularly important to him because the, the, the symbolism of Labour taking back the English capital, I think, would would, would give him some leeway. Mr Corbyn desperately needs Sadiq Khan far more than Sadiq Khan needs Jeremy Corbyn. And you can you can see it. There's this desire to clasp him to the leader's bosom. And, and Sadiq is desperate not to be seen with Jeremy Corbyn. It's the principal line that Zach Goldsmith has used all the way through the campaign. It's always Sadiq Khan and Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn's man in London. London is ostensibly on paper a Labour city, but it might not necessarily be a Jeremy Corbyn city. That's quite, it's quite right, yeah. And, and on the Goldsmith front, he, of course, is more than happy to be the Boris candidate or the David Cameron candidate. Take what you like. He's happy with those associations in marked contrast to Khan, who obviously wants to steer clear of, of Corbyn at all costs. In terms of the way it's, it'll work as an election, traditionally, we've always talked about the London donut, haven't we? I, that the outside part is where the Conservatives need to mop up around outer London. And inner London was always traditionally Labour. It's got more complicated of course in recent times because if anything central London is getting wealthier and wealthier and more sort of affluent types have moved in the suggestion is that outer London isn't quite sort of the gentle rich suburbia it used to be it's really interesting that Zach Goldsmith's strategy is based almost entirely on campaigning in those outer London boroughs if you if you live in a place like Hackney or Islington Zach Goldsmith's not gonna not gonna trouble you outside a supermarket if on the other hand you live in Barnet or Hounslow or something you probably can't take 10 steps without one of his people approaching you with a leaflet and a winning smile obviously you you do the the peak so to speak of the campaign is coming in in these next few weeks so far You'd, you'd have to say that Zach Goldsmith has failed to catch fire as a, as a London mayoral candidate and has plenty of work to do, I think, to capture the imagination and go against the tide. Compared to those titanic battles that were Boris versus Red Ken, Sadiq Khan versus Zach Goldsmith is not on that level. It's like looking in the paper and seeing there's an FA Cup tie on BBC TV. And you turn it on and it's something like Colchester against South End. Very exciting if you happen to live in that part of Essex, but otherwise a pretty depressing fixture. Yeah, it's not Tottenham versus Arsenal in the London stake. Let's go back to uh, Jeremy Corbyn's loyalty list. The good news is that 19 MPs are listed as his core group of supporters, which only leaves a couple of hundred others, 49 of whom are described as negative and 36 as outright hostile. This all emerged just before Prime Minister's questions. This was the time for Jeremy Corbyn to strike, to, to lay into David Cameron a, another omni-shambles budget, a high-level ministerial resignation. So Mr Corbyn picked up that loaded gun, aimed it squarely across the dispatch box and blasted his own foot off. Yes, and I mean, why such a survey would need to be carried out is is questionable because I don't think it's any great secret the vast majority of the Labour Parliamentary Party don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be their leader. We've all known that. We've discussed it at length for some time. To go to the trouble of an actual survey to go into details about it seemed a fairly pointless naff embarrassing exercise and it was of course inevitably highlighted and greatly enjoyed by the Prime Minister. I'm a bit worried to be honest where we would lie on Mr Corbyn's loyalty league table. I'm assuming 
that we probably wouldn't be listed in core, given that we have occasionally suggested that he's not absolutely the smoothest political operator. Yeah, I, I think we might be on the negative end of the scale presently. However impartial we try to be at all times, of course. Well, speaking of loyalty, it's been quite the week for some of those who are less than keen on Boris Johnson. They seem to have decided that now is the time to go after the soon-to-be former mayor and Tory leader in waiting. Uh, Robert, they've all sort of surged out of the woodwork with this long list of grievances. Yes, it's very hard at this time to to calculate what will really stick to Boris. I mean, he's had plenty of mud thrown at him in the past, but different rules do seem to apply. I mean, if if David Cameron or George Osborne had faced or even admitted to some of the things that Boris has done, I don't think they would be, it's fair to say, would be in power now. But Boris, on the other hand, the public perception of him allows him to be this sort of Edwardian, you know, likeable rascal figure, however manufactured that is. And he seems to be able to ride these storms again and again and again. Particularly powerful in the times was Matthew Paris's takedown of Boris. It was. I mean, that was uh, that was an extremely eloquent silk glove of an assassination attempt. It really was. And it, it, made, it made very, very entertaining reading. I think even some of you know, Boris's admirers would agree there were plenty of things in there that A, Boris doesn't necessarily keep his promises. B, it's a personal life that leaves a lot to be desired. You know, C, is, does, it, does he really have the capacity and the drive to be a prime minister of this country? All, all very, very valid questions. But again, I just say, does that really cut much mustard with the general public or the perception? Does that cut much mustard with the Tory membership that at the end of the day will decide the fate of the next Tory leader? That move to come out for leaving the EU has not just you know, won him a lot of attention, it's won him probably the great fondness of a significant proportion of Conservative associations who may well feel when the time comes that they want to put pressure on the MPs to make sure that Boris gets down to the final two of the leadership candidates because the, the, the flaw in Boris's plan to become Tory leader is that before he gets to the membership ballot, the MPs whittle that down from however many candidates come forward to just two that go to the ballot paper of members. And so Boris, I think, realises that a lot of MPs will have doubts about him as a party leader. I think he's trying to circumvent them by appealing directly to the associations. The associations will then lean on the MPs to make sure Boris is on that ballot paper. And bear in mind, there are going to be fewer seats up for grabs in 2020. We're losing 50 constituencies. Some Tory MPs may be on the hunt for a seat and need to keep those associations happy. Yeah, that's a very good point. And you think with Osborne being the... the party strategist that he is, you imagine that he will ha- obviously have nominations tied up. He will be in that, that final two. Whether he wins or not is obviously a completely different matter. As you say, Parliament, the Parliamentary Party could, in theory, do for Boris. We, we cannot discount that another another figure, a current outsider, will emerge between now and then. The history of Tory party leadership contests suggests that is very possible. But you say Boris has to put the work in now to just get the numbers on side to get through to that too. I think he certainly fancies his chances one-on-one against Osborne. It's whether he can actually get there. Now, I want to pause for a moment to recall some of our soothsaying powers. Here is a short extract from our last podcast, which was released 
a couple of days after the budget. There are some Tory MPs, some Tory backbenchers who are already getting a lot of heat from constituents saying, what is this about taking money off disabled people? Is that the thing that's going to come back and, and bite them? I wonder. I, I, I do, because the, the injustice of that it seems has been well documented in, in recent days. And again, that was, it was very much glossed over, or dare I say, not mentioned at all, I don't think. I think that could still come back to bite the Chancellor on the bottom, so to speak. I remember those days. I had a decent voice then. Little did we know that a few hours later, it would all explode with Ian Duncan Smith's resignation. Now, Robert, we said cuts to disability benefits are the thing that's going to cause trouble out of this budget. I don't think we necessarily expected that much trouble. No, and let, let's be frank. Uh, at the time, the, uh, the, the trouble erupted via a prominent Conservative politician, i.e. Ian Duncan Smith, resigning and objecting to that policy. It wasn't the opposition. I don't remember on the day of the budget, Labour Party making loud noises about it. It was only subsequently, it was only when Ian Duncan Smith's long-time turf war with the Chancellor you know, exploded in front of all of us that it became the hugely damaging issue to Osborne that it is now. I have to ask, though, does anybody believe that Mr Duncan Smith, having introduced the bedroom tax and <laughs> heaven only knows how many other policies that have with respect raised the pressure on some people in straightened financial circumstances has suddenly had this attack of conscience in no way related to the fact that he's campaigning to leave the eu in no way related to the fact that he told the sunday telegraph a few weeks ago that he thought he might lose his job as a consequence no ab absolutely it would be naive to say this was all about his conscience about welfare cuts. I actually do think it was to a large degree. I do, I do think there are a number of factors at play here. I think he did strongly object I think, uh, to the, the welfare uh, change. I think he, he, he did genuinely believe that was unfair. I think there's been a long time bad relationship with the Chancellor. Where I think they've, they've fought again and again and again in budgets in recent years. So I think that was always heating up. Europe, you cannot deny that Europe is, is an issue. He's now a prominent Brexit campaigner, which I think, again, he's probably thought, well, if ever I was going to go, this is the time to go now. He's not in that inner circle, uh, the, the Cameron Osborne inner circle. He never has been. He's always been a more of a maverick outsider. And I think, so I think it was a number of factors. I I do think he came from a pretty sincere place in, in terms of being opposed to, to the Chancellor's measures. But you can't deny that the, the fact that his stance in the EU is at loggerheads of the Prime Minister. You can't pretend that that wasn't also part of his rationale. I just have this feeling that when you've predicted your own downfall in the Conservative yes. Party's House Journal and then you resign two or three weeks later, it's a, it's a little bit, you know, you know you're about to get sacked. So you go, oh, sod you, then I'm off. And it doesn't hurt that along the way you've given George Osborne a kick. And let's be honest, there's, there's plenty to play for in the Conservative Party at the moment. I mean, David Cameron's only going to be, going to be Prime Minister for so much longer. Uh, there could be a Eurosceptic Tory leader not far away uh, on the horizon. So maybe Ian Duncan Smith has another chapter in his career waiting you know, by taking this stance now. Well, we, we will watch with interest to see who resigns immediately after this podcast has been released. <laughs> How's Michael Gove feeling? He's, he's all right, isn't he? You think he's still going to be there? Yeah, you, hang on, <laughs> hang on, Govey. Just just for a, just for a couple of weeks. We'll leave it there because um, I've got a I've got a gig as a Barry White impressionist in the pub down the road. It's very lucrative, Paul. Don't mock the work. Do get in touch on Twitter at uh, Paul Osborne. And uh, until next time, from Robert and from myself, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>